This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Into it tonight, we are Cassie Wright and Vanessa Taholka. Hello, <laughs> it's lovely to have girls in the studio. Yeah, proving that we women. can talk about tech. <laughs> <laughs> I think we prove that week after week. <laughs> Coming up later tonight, we are pleased to be speaking to Garrick Packer, who's a developer up in Brizzy. He has been working on an app that's amazing for emergency response, and uh, we'll be getting into that a bit later in the show, so stick around for that. We're also hoping to do a little bit of budget coverage, so hopefully you're not too worn out by what there is with the budget. But there's a couple of bits which affect uh, the technology sector, so we're going to have a look at that. But before we get to that, time for some good news. Google Australia engineers have been helping fight against Ebola in Africa with some things that they've been doing. So what they've been looking at was uh, developing a tablet device that allowed medical workers to record patient information without spreading the virus. The issue that they found they were getting is that they were writing down patient notes on paper and this had to be spread externally. So they were having to relay it across the phone. It was taking time. They were getting errors. They couldn't move paper because they were worried about it being porous and taking on... Yeah, which is an issue that we don't really think about, but Mm. even the way that we communicate... Yeah. So even with tablets and things, obviously you Mm. can have germs on a mobile phone or a tablet device. But what they did is they decided we need a case and we need a way that we can sanitize these things and just really simple down-to-earth tech we're talking about. There's pretty poor infrastructure in some of the places that they were trying to solve this problem. Intermittent power supplies, um, no internet networks, and people were shouting in Sierra Leone. They were shouting patient notes across fences to avoid contamination. Now, this is low tech, right? That's pretty, pretty tricky as well. Yeah. They started using off the shelf Sony tablets and they fitted them out with Ebola proof casings. That's certainly one feature that you could look for in your casings now for your tablets Ebola proof. <laughs> But the antibacterial stuff is really important. Yeah. To, uh, definitely things should be looked into, especially with the percentage of bacteria and yeah. uh, so, bits of feces so that are on screen. all your germaphobes can, yeah. can get out there. Um, but this is serious stuff. I mean, you can't take a lot of regular cases and dunk them in what they were doing, which is a 0.5% chlorine solution, which kills Ebola, but it's also extremely harmful to exposed skin. The battery and installed applications could be used on private networks and Google designed really low power servers to provide internet access in an ad hoc basis in these areas. And apparently the health workers loved it. They were saving about 10 minutes per patient just in terms of communicating their their statuses. It's really nice to see good news stories about uh, creative ways to use tech. It doesn't always have to be a super complicated solution. It can just be getting the right little details there. Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. Every week we're talking about Netflix. There's Mm -hmm. always something else they're doing. It's exciting to have a big player exploding in our market. What they've done just on Monday is started releasing rankings of the speed of Australian ISPs. 
Now, they have had a big influence on... Because before this, all you've got to do is do a speed test on your computer and screenshot it, send it to your friends or ask people online. There wasn't a proper way to actually see what everyone was offering because ISPs claim to offer certain speeds, but we all know uh, (laughs) it's not always a reality. You mentioned mentioned that great speed test tool, which a lot of people do, and you can hop onto lots of different forums and people compare their, this is my workplace upload speeds and download speeds, and this is my home, and this is the back room, and we don't know why it's so patchy there. (laughs) But what they've done is uh, since they've come into the market, they've taken up a lot of bandwidth and customers have been complaining about sluggish speeds. Some ISPs have said the service had resulted in jumps of up to 25% of network traffic in April. And... Some providers are still figuring out how to deal with this extra volume. Mm. You know, they need more backhaul and that sort of thing to manage it. So the April results are Telstra, number seven. Average speed, 2.23 megabits per second. Dodo, 2.29. So it's pretty close, right? Number five, Exitel. I don't know anyone on Exitel. No. Is it a parent company? For- I'm not sure might be a super budget thing that we need to look into a bit more. <laughs> I haven't bothered shopping around for a little while with my um, ISP. Primus, 3.03 megabits per second. IINet is number three, 3.24 megabits per second. This is, I know this riveting, getting there. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> following the stats. Number two, Optus, 3.27. And number one was TPG. Now, they also split these into which services they provide, like cable, fibre, DSL, wireless, satellite. So the Netflix ISP speed index is one to keep an eye on and just try and maybe benchmark your services if you're shopping around. Mm. Or you could just head to Choice. They do a great job of shopping around for us. So that is the Netflix news for the week. We can now know that we've had a complete show. (laughs) (laughs) Something else that popped across my desk this week was pretty interesting thing. It was from the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and what they're doing is they're participating in the third occasion of the Global Privacy Enforcement Network, Privacy Sweep. Now what is that? What is a privacy sweep? Tell me more. I'm riveted. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much what they're doing is benchmarking and examining a certain amount of websites and mobile apps which are targeted to children aged 12 and under. So it's just a real Mm. little temperature check on how people are self-rating themselves and putting themselves out there and trying to look after the privacy of children. Now, it's kind of interesting from uh, a government department with a government that has really put in the data retention policy, which is massively overreaching into people's privacy. I guess it's another method of control, though. You're really controlling what other people's children have access to and how other people's children communicate. But it's also, I guess, a way to appease parents who might be a little bit on edge about technology. And it is quite scary. Like, my little brother's turning 10 this year. All his friends have iPads. And I know what you can do with them. It doesn't matter, you know, if you have a SIM or not. There's Wi-Fi everywhere these days. It's quite hard to lock things down. That's right. And kids are ingenious at at finding out ways to get across things. I know we were getting on websites that our school had blocked back in the day. So, and and frankly, I encourage that uh, that intrepid spirit in uh, in kids. Yeah. But it's really interesting trying to set boundaries around it and safe spaces, and understand that their personal information that they're putting online can be taken advantage of by 
and we've you know, got, bad guys. And we've got the challenge that so many kids are more tech savvy than their parents. And I'm concerned that we're going to have these problems, that as, as we age out, we're just not going to be in touch with the way kids use things. There'll just be generational differences. I'm excited to see the results of this as well, because I do know with with a lot of apps especially that are designed for children but they are designed to encourage in-app purchases and the different ethics behind that with Mm. the frustration and um so it'd be interesting to see what what comes out of the the privacy side as well yeah so the office for the australian information commissioner quote the australian privacy principles particularly the ones that say as a general principle an individual under the age of 18 has capacity to consent when they have sufficient understanding and maturity to understand what's being proposed and then it goes on to suggest that parents and guardians can consent on behalf of young people and that's probably a good idea but they also say it might not be uh, reasonable for an organization to assess the capacity of kids therefore individuals aged under 15 are presumed not to have the capacity to consent so when we're looking at these sort of digital applications and what you're automatically allowing through or website services and that sort of thing that's where that just becomes all right under 15 we really need to make sure that we're saying the right things and putting the right protections in and putting things in front of kids that don't say put your name in here don't say put your address in here and those sort of ambit um, requests for information are so standard now. How do you yes. decide when something's targeted towards kids or not? I mean, I've seen so many kids using social media by claiming that they're older than they are. And then once they're in, they sometimes don't think about the privacy controls. They are sharing too much identifying information. Mm. And, you know, as a as a recent non-teen myself, it's something that I look back and think, oh, God, why did I share all that stuff? Thank but God you're on our team, Cassie, to keep us in touch with the youth. I'm 23 now. Imagine if I was 13. Yeah, yeah. We need to uh, get some consenting just over 15-year-olds on air to report back on what it was like a few years ago. We'll have to do that soon. What's interesting is that there's a whole lot of countries around the world participating in the 2015 sweep. We might uh, try and keep a watching brief on that and see what they come up with. Non Triple R, you're with Cassie and Vanessa on Bite Into It. We would like to welcome Garrick Packett to the show. Garrick is one of the directors of Consulate, which is a newly established company specialising in building apps for public safety. He joins us this evening to tell us about the Guardian Evacuations app, which won the Global Disaster Resilience App Challenge, which was organised partly by the United Nations Office of Disaster Risk Reduction and Esri Australia, who are like a global mapping systems expert company. Garrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. We were excited to read about the app that you've developed. Can you describe for us the problem that the app is trying to solve? So essentially the evacuation uh, centre management is a very difficult process. People trying to find what to do prior to a, to a cyclone or prior to a, a large storm event um, are unsure what to, where to go and often unsure of what uh, decisions to sort of make in terms of how to get there, what they should bring, you know, can they take their pet and should they leave their their house. So I think um, what we're trying to do with this app is really fundamentally trying to empower people to make the right decisions. Sometimes before a, before a storm event, people are, need to decide on whether they want to be on the road. Mm. You know, are the roads closed? 
other evacuation centres open nearby and are they still accepting people in those centres? Because obviously, you know, evacuation, designated evacuation centres do have a uh, maximum number of people they can, a maximum capacity of people that they can handle. And um, what we're trying to do is really give people some understanding of, or visibility of what's around them, you know, the, the weather events and, you know, how they can actually get to get to safety. So I think, I think probably the key point of all this is really um, about adapting a single point of truth. So I think it, at the moment in these types of disasters or, you know, that, um, prior to, you know, a, a cyclone hitting the, hitting the Queensland coast, mm. people are... You know, you know, they're looking at the bomb site, or they're, yeah. they're they're ringing their council, or they're or they're um, yeah, they're looking at the the state um, roads um, mm. you know, department, looking for whether the, the roads are open or whether they're congested. So what what we're trying to do is really sort of bring all that into a single point of truth. And the biggest risk that we have, I think, in in, in today's technology environment, is that people. Uh, especially with social media, there's a, there's a large risk that people are actually getting the wrong or outdated information. When you say that you're trying to create a single point of truth, are the emergency response teams for any given situation part of providing those information sources or are you going out and seeking that information from their sites and aggregating it? So so this, this um, idea of the Guardian Evacuations app that we put together to win the award is, is really an extension of, of, of a product that was um, developed by QIT Plus. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a product that's used by the majority of councils in Queensland at a, at a local government level. And part, of that, and part of that solution, which effectively manages the call centres um, for those areas that are likely to be affected by you know, disasters, mm-hmm. uh, a, a part of that solution has a, an evacuation um, uh, centre register, so it contains all that information about um, where they are, what what the capacity of the shelter is, you know, if they accept pets, and and so this app would be like a window to that to that information. Mm. And would there be real time updating of that sort of information? Yeah, for sure. Mm. So I think I think being able to tap into, so looking at. This, so the, the idea of the app was really sort of tap into those live feeds. Mm. So bring bring together those excuse me, those information, those data sets that have been vetted and approved by authorities and make the right information available to people out there in the out there. So who did you talk to when you were designing this solution to this problem that you could see? So the, so the basis behind the the disaster, the effective disaster management, um, means that that my partners um, at, at QIT Plus have, have had a strong relationship with those, those you know, the different tiers of government mm. um, and, and the volunteer services associated with disaster management, and they can start to see the you know the problem areas associated with all the um, the bottlenecks associated with the information mm. um, that that needs to go to the um, go to the public. One of the big challenges is that if people can pre-register for these the, for the evacuation centres while they're on their on their way or, or they're just about to leave the home, then that gives that gives evacuation shelters some insight or some some knowledge of who's out there, who's on their way, 
then start to sort of make that initial registration a lot easier. So mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are quite frantic in, in these situations, particularly people with kids or if you know, you're caring for, for the young or the elderly. Yeah. You want to sort of make these deci- the right decisions and filling out a bunch of paperwork when you get to these centres can, uh, you know, there's probably one or two people at the front desk it can be quite chaotic. So if we can kind of streamline that process, make it easier for people to sort of really just start to make contact, start to get the information that they need, then it just kind of starts to make things a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. can make the process a bit smoother, streamlined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about an app, is this actually like an app-based solution locked to iOS or Android, or is it like a responsive website? Uh, yeah, the first candidate that we built was really just a a web-based application but the current candidate that we're building at the moment will be you know a native app for um for ios and android Mm -hmm. and and we've been able to i think one of the huge advantages of being able to sort of build these this sort of application very rapidly is that we've been able to leverage off Esri's ArcGIS online platform, and so they offer they offer some tools, and one tool in particular that's um, that's that's currently in beta that will allow you to develop an app in um, in one language, and then through a product called Esri's App Studio, mm. and then Poor Esri will then provide provide a, a cloud service to generate the native code mm. for. Um, iOS, Android, and also desktop-based, you know, Mac, Windows, and, and Linux environments we've, as well. We've spoken to people who've worked with Esri's technology before, and the aspect that we heard a lot about was their work in geographic information systems. Yeah, Are yeah. you also tapping into their expertise with mapping? Yeah, well, that's my background. So I've, um, my background's in that, that building that spatial intelligence and, mm. and making making those sorts of technologies work for you know different businesses and so so we're focused on on leveraging off location intelligence provided through you know these Esri ArcGIS online tools yeah. to both provide a you know a cloud-based solution for hosting data it's also a vehicle for bringing data together so and also um and there's a number of different application developer endpoints that allow you to very rapidly create um, these sorts of apps. So mm. I think the idea for this app that we built was something that had been building for you know many years, but the actual the, the app that we won this award for, we, we built this in less than two weeks. I think that in itself is a strong proof that that the maturity of the Esri platform and the Guardian platform um, that we've built this stuff on is you know, has enabled us to really sort of build these um, tools very quickly. Garrick, we can imagine easily some of the big technical challenges that you have when you've got an emergency situation. We've heard of mobile phone towers being overwhelmed and people having trouble getting network access and things during an emergency. Have you thought about any offline type of solutions with aspects of this, like with the maps or with just people knowing locations of places? Yeah, I think that's fundamentally what, you know, what the real power of, of, of what we're, we're building into our first release will be that the ability to have some of that functionality offline. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things such as the, the base maps, you know, the street maps, yeah. the ability to find 
how to get from A to B, you know, how to get to you know the evacuation shelters. That that mm-hmm. sort of functionality can be you know brought down on the app and kept offline if if they lose connectivity. And, and in most most large cyclone um, or large storm events, particularly in North Queensland, you know the, the tower the uh, the mobile network is likely to go out, you know, if, if even short periods of time. So some of that functionality, like registering for a, um, an evacuation shelter, is obviously, you know, some of that functionality will be limited. But sure. even if, if we're able to give the, um, um, give the public some tools to help them offline, then, yeah, that's, you know, one of the, the key capabilities we're looking at. There's a lot of integration that you've got to get done to solve this sort of problem and yeah. um, there's different platforms and you've got people who are stressed out so there's maybe UX issues and things. Yeah. What do you think was the hardest part of the development process to, like what was the hardest problem for you guys to solve? I think at this point in time because we're, we're sort of looking at expanding the coverage of this app mm. globally, the biggest challenge we have at the moment is sourcing data. So we need to sort of tap into the right data sets. These sorts of data sets, the evacuation shelters um, and the registers, these are, these are data sets that are kept by local governments. Mm. I, w- I wouldn't say it's so much of a hurdle but more of a time-consuming exercise is mm. it's very important at, at the moment for us to sort of make those connections, make um, undertake that networking and really sort of build those relationships yeah. um, so that we can sort of work with the governments or the authorities to sort of capture this information because we want to be capturing the right information. We want to be making the right information available. So are you tending to tick off the ability to cope with certain types of disasters one after the other? So say you've dealt with maybe a cyclone threat but you're not really sure how you'd handle bushfires? I think in terms of the app, we're really sort of trying to make trying to give people an understanding of where they can go to seek shelter. So I think in, in all types of disasters, there will be like an element of that will be the same in, in that people need to know where they can go for help. Sure. So so in, in most cases where we would like this app to be a preventative measure, so for people to make decisions before they get to a point where they are in danger. So mm. if, if we can sort of give people, you know, more of an understanding that, the rivers are rising, you know, they may be locked off from urban areas or townships, so potentially they should get into those those areas if they think they might be cut off for days on end. Also, just being being aware of, you know, where those shelters are. Those shelters are you know, significantly far away, particularly in North Queensland where you've got regional areas that are kind of very spread out. Mm. People might want to make a decision to, to get make that hour drive into that shelter now rather than, um, you know, risking being, um, if they've got young or elderly particularly, yeah. uh, or risk being kind of uncontactable or, sure. or out of network coverage after the event. So, Garrick, we've got a lot of students who listen to the show. Yeah. And... I think they'd find your sort of project pretty inspiring. It's clearly yeah. trying to solve a problem and do some good in the world. Yeah. What type of skills have you got involved in the team who's working on this, which might give them some ideas about useful uh, technical skills that they could be picking up if they want to do work like this in the future? Yeah, sure. I think obviously an element of programming experience is, is key from a, from, a, from a technical development point of view. I think one of the biggest... So I was lucky enough to go across with my partners to a recent um, Esri Developer Summit mm. in, in the US, and 
seeing a lot of the newer technologies and and, and the amount of you know, JavaScript frameworks and and beta technologies are about to make their way to the into the market. It's important for people to be aware of what's the new technologies and mm. and understand what's about to hit the market because. I think if you're if you're writing thousands of lines of code, or you're taking months on end to build an app, mm. you're using the wrong tools. So there's so many tools and frameworks now to sort of enable you to rapidly develop an app. That yeah, it's very important to understand what's out there to sort of help you do that quicker. And there's so many people now evolving into this space of app development that you're competing with so many other people yeah. that if you're taking months on end to build an app, there'll probably be three other apps out there by the time you get to yeah. the market. Is there any way that you like to learn? Do you recommend that people just go out there and get a GitHub account and just start committing and learning and things? Or uh, forums or what would you recommend? I'm a strong believer in using best mm-hmm. of breed technologies like you know Esri and, and Microsoft and and the developer um, forums. Yeah, those things. Getting yourself to conferences, and getting yourself to you know seminars, and meeting people. I think it's very easy to kind of lock yourself in a room and learn a lot of stuff. And I'm one of those people, you know. Like sort of, <laughs> I'm a bit of a geek. Like I like to sort of no. get in there and, <laughs> and and read, you know, read forums and blogs till the cows come home. But yeah. I think it's very important to put yourself out there. So even if you're an introverted person, it's important to put yourself out there and meet people in your field. I think getting to conferences, particularly developer conferences, are very useful and, and networking mm. is very, I think that's very important. So Garrick, what's the next step for you guys? You're working on porting this to different platforms. Yeah. What are your blue sky scenarios for this app? One of the huge aspects that has come out of winning this award is the media attention. So we had an article written in the Australian late last year and, and that was seen by quite a few people and, and we actually got um, interest from the Canadian government and they asked us to sort of come over there and meet with a lot of their government officials and that's been mind-blowing, honestly. It's been, it's been a very exciting journey. But at the moment, we're really sort of focused on a lot of hard work, increasing those networks and trying to build something to help people. Honestly, these apps that we're building are going to be free to the public and then we'll be working with the governments and authorities as the consumer for making these applications viable. That sounds great. We wish you every luck with that endeavour, Garrick. Thank you. And thanks so much for speaking to us this evening. Thanks. On Triple R, you're with Bud Into It. Cassie and Vanessa here. We are going to now get to the budget. Dun dun dun. Oh, big news. I've <laughs> been seeing lots of Joe Hockey's face all over social media, so, uh, you know, you know that something's been happening. That's always <laughs> a shame. Um, so, the first standout bit of budget news that affects the tech sector is the so called Netflix tax. And we've known this was, has been coming for a while. Yeah. We've felt it in our bones, in our waters. <laughs> Wow, this show really is going full woman. So what is it? It is a pretty broad tax. Anything you can download, including music, movies, ebooks, digital magazines, streaming services, will be taxed, and they'll be taxed at the 10% rate. So it's chucking the GST onto, onto everything that has formerly been non-GST That's related, right. out of the grasp of the GST, which is online stuff. And, you know, there are lots of people saying that this is a massive deal, and it does affect a lot of the purchases we make. But on the other hand, 
I mean, we're already paying GST for most things in our everyday lives. Local businesses have to include GST in their prices. In some ways, it could, in a small part, even out help to level. St- well, no, I mean, you're you're comparing a mountain to a. We're not economists here, you know. But uh, what you're saying is that it reduces protectionism, or it already increases. It increases protectionism. Well, it's not really. None of this is protectionism. Did I did I say I'm not an economist? Uh, Let me. I'm just saying some of the some of the stuff. uh, Like later on, we'll talk about how it's affected small businesses. Yeah. It it could also add to that because say you're buying you know you're buying a song online. If that song was you know, 10% cheaper than the physical copy, it's now the same price. Although that's never going to be well, the I exact guess case. We need, to, we need to explain that this, at the moment, everything I've read says it's about intangible goods bought online. So that'll be interesting because you can apply this and it's weird that they don't apply it then on, say, a physical book from Amazon. Hmm. You think that's competing with your local booksellers and what have you. Yeah. Also interesting to see how it might affect services like Uber and Airbnb. We're really not sure how that's going to happen yet. People who run startups are saying that these sort of ideas are really unfriendly to business, to startup businesses, because they'll have to file tax returns in lots of different jurisdictions around the world. For every country that does this sort of thing, they've got to then deal with that. So the overheads are huge. So that's an interesting reaction and uh, quite fair, I think. Other tax news or budget news for startups is that uh, the small business tax rate has been cut from 30% to 28%, which is a tax discount of up to $1,000 for small businesses not run as companies. That affects small businesses with turnovers of less than $2 million who will be able to claim $20,000 tax deductions for every item that they purchase. Employees in startups will get access to tax breaks on shares they receive as part of their pay. Now, to me, the only part of that that really affects startups particularly is the, the tax breaks on shares, and that, that news came out quite a while ago. It's just mm-hmm. now that it's sort of been budgeted for. But the other parts, there's this weird thing where um, the government seems to lump small, medium enterprises in the same boat as startups, and culturally they behave very differently. Yeah. That's a challenge. I guess it's sort of a matter of convenience from a mm. well, from their standpoint. They're like, oh, this is just because a business has, say, for example, a, a small number of employees does not make it a startup. Yeah, and, and also the startup culture. I mean, it's a lot more risky. You're mm. going to have a lot more failures, but also the successes have more chances of being quite large successes yeah. in quite succinct periods of time. So you'd think that your investing incentives need to be quite different. I think there's been disappointment at a failure to articulate a real digital uh, policy in a sense of supporting the local industry, the local startup industry, and treating them really discreetly. So that's a bit of a missed opportunity in this budget. That's the perception I'm picking up from the sort of startup Twitter account, people who I go to, little things on on Gizmodo and, and what have you. So that's something. There have been little changes to, I think, fringe benefits tax, So let's see, there's 
actually that kind of ties in this whole exemption applying from the 1st of April 2016, applying to small businesses of annual turnovers of less than $2 million. FBT normally means employers have to pay a percentage of tax on items provided to employees on top of salary. So if you, say, have a salary package laptop or a work-provided mm-hmm. mobile phone, that sort of thing. But a new exemption means these items will be tax-free from next year only to these small businesses with annual turnovers of less than $2 million. So it will be a very small number of small businesses, you'd think. $2 is not a huge amount of turnover. Individual employees can have more than one qualifying work-related portable electronic device even where the items have substantially similar functions. That's interesting that the budget articulates the fact that your mobile phone is very similar to many tablet devices and yeah, your or maybe laptop you is indistinguishable a, from... A tablet and a phablet. <laughs> yeah. like, maybe that's necessary. Maybe. That's a bit of splitting hairs there. Other parts of the budget which affect technology and not you as a consumer or you as a business person, but you as a person who has information out there is is the data retention has actually been funded in this budget. So we knew that when they brought in this bill that required ISPs to do all this monitoring of people, the ISPs went out there and said, this is going to cost an awful lot of money. How much are you going to pitch in towards this cost? And how much are we going to have to pay? And by we, they mean our consumers, the people who pay for these services, because inevitably these costs are going to be passed on. The budget says that $131 million is going towards the cost of keeping customers' metadata for at least two years. Now, this is a 50% contribution from the government towards what the ISPs have said the cost is. Actually, that's not what the ISP said the cost was. That's what uh, an independent auditor's report said to the government that the cost was. And the ISPs are saying, look, we think that that's a conservative estimate. The auditors thought that that was fair. It might be. Who knows? But uh, we could probably expect that there's going to be costs passed on to us and we knew this would happen when data retention got in. Finally, ASIO. Um, ASIO has seen $296 million for new IT systems. That's interesting. They're collecting more data. They're going to need to analyse that more. And uh, there's that. There's also a bit of um, anti uh, anti-propaganda-type projects that they've got going on in ASIO, looking at people recruiting Aussies to fighting wars overseas, that sort Mm. of thing. So that they said that there was going to be a digital campaign to try and deal with that problem. It's all very nebulous at the moment, but uh, there was a bit about that. So that was what we picked up from the budget. And this is all, just to remind everyone, after the the recent Privacy Commissioner rules uh, featuring journalist Ben Grubb that Mm. metadata is is actually personal. Mm, Absolutely. Um, And so that's currently being still fought over with with Telstra going back and uh yeah we'll be keeping up with Ben's story yeah we'll we'll be keeping up with that but then there's also all this money is going into the collection of metadata and what does that mean now for us as individuals what does that Mm. especially if we're paying Mm. for our personal information to be stored maybe um, a happier population would be less likely to be radicalized (laughs) maybe if they had better health and education Uh, who knows it's just it's just a radical thought I had you can 
If you have a moment to be amused, see how the budget affects you by checking out budget 2015 at choice.com.au. I plugged in my details and it said budget meh. That was <laughs> that was its reaction. It was kind of amusing. I'd be curious to see if other people got uh, different reactions by plugging in their their details. They're not retaining any information. You can put in a fake name and everything. <laughs> they, they don't keep it. Um, choice are pretty good at looking after your data. I'm Triple R for the very last bit of bite into it with Cassie and Vanessa. We've had fun being with you. Yes, it has been good. Time for events and opportunities. In opportunities this week, Cassie, this one looked good. This is a huge one. So this is the Anita Borg Scholarship for the Asia Pacific. So Dr. Anita Borg, she was born in 1949, passed away in 2003, and she believed that technology affects all aspects of our economic, political, social, personal lives. She was basically a technology rebel with a cause, uh, which is pretty (laughs) exciting and some girl power tech stuff that we we do like to hear about here, bite into it. So she fought tirelessly during her life to ensure that technology's impact would be a personal and positive one because she believed it was so ingrained in, in everything. And so in 1997, she founded the Institute for Women and Technology. It's continuing on to this day as the Anita Borg Institute for Women and Technology. And part of it was with her vision, she proposed the 50-50 by 2020 initiative. So It's got a ring to it. Yeah. She had a way of words. It's fancy, but it's basically equality in computer graduates, computing graduates. So mm. she wanted 50% women, 50% men by 2020. So the percentage of computer science degrees earned by women is still far from 50%. Yeah. Um, yeah. As anyone working in the industry would, would be able to tell you. Yeah, right. uh, so it's still, it's still something that she's fighting towards. And so Google, as part of their commitment to furthering her vision, are offering a memorial scholarship for Asia Pacific. Actually, they've got them all around the world, but we just plugged in the Asia Pacific because oh, we just went, this well, one's relevant to you guys. This is important for us. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. If you're listening somewhere else overseas, please check out the other areas. Yeah. Um, but this is to encourage women to excel in computing and technology and become active role models and leaders in these fields. So basically the scholarship, uh, you get an amount specific to your local region. So if you're in Australia, it would be hopefully enough to fulfill everything that you need to do yeah Um, so it's really targeting people who are already studying and then if you're studying in the computer science field you are eligible to apply for this yeah you don't you can be a citizen permanent resident or an international student and for this particular scholarship you can be anywhere australia china mainland hong kong taiwan new zealand japan korea southeast asia and india so you can you can be studying in different places um it's it's not just you have to go to a certain place or you have to be in a certain area. There's quite a lot of really flexibility. really looks like they're giving reasons mm. to say yes. And you also get invited to attend the Google Scholars Retreat in the Google Shanghai office uh, in September. So that is really, really exciting. So eligibility, you need to be a female student enrolled in undergraduate or postgraduate study in 2016, be enrolled in a university in the Asia Pacific, as we said, be majoring in computer science, computer engineering, or a closely related technical field, and uh, this is my favorite one exemplify leadership and demonstrate passion for increasing the involvement of women in computer science yay yeah. yay anita borg Woo. yay memorial um, scholarship so the deadline's on may 27th and you can find out more at google.com.au slash anita borg please please check it out it sounds like a phenomenal opportunity when you say slash anita borg my head goes to slash fiction which is oh my gosh me. no <laughs> 
All right. In our events for the week, we have one mega one, which uh, looks pretty topical. Metadata in the networked society is happening tomorrow night from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at a Melbourne University campus. It's in the uh, auditorium Kenneth Meyer Building in Parkville. Now, this is being co-organised by our say, but also it's going to be the actual public launch of the Melbourne Network Society Institute. That is going to bring together a panel of four people. So you've got a partner from Gilbert and Tobin's Communications, Media and Data Protection Practice. You've also got Vish Nandal, who's the Chief Technology Officer at Telstra. You've got Professor Thas Nurma Lathas, who's the Director of the Melbourne Network Society Institute, and he's also a Professor of Electrical and Electronic Engineering. And you've got John Stanton, who is the current CEO of the Communications Alliance. Now, this is super topical. I've already seen some great questions pre-submitted to this panel via the Alsay platform. We are tweeting out the links to that and uh, feel free to check it out. We'd love to say thank you to our guest this evening, Garrick Packer, and the great work he's doing with Evacuations Apps. Thanks to you guys for tuning in. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.